Summer of Love. We've been doing this all summer long. Of course, we're out of it now. June through August, we finished the last one last week on interpretation. Um, but I have this up here because what we're talking about today is, is it dovetails from this. And we've been talking about the individual gifts that God gives each one of us. It says the Spirit gives each of us, all of us, each of us gifts. And um, he gives them to this, us as we need them and as he sees fit. So that's how we all operate independently and individually before God as Christians in the world. But beyond that is how do we operate interdependently with each other in the church? And I'm going to talk about the church this morning a little bit. But before I do, I'm going to put up a, a little cute little slide here. And I'm going to invite up Stacy Underhill. So you know Stacy? Stacy, come on up here. Yeah, she's going to share a word she got. Okay. Good morning. Let's see. Y'all are so beautiful. <laughs> wow, y'all are. <laughs> Bride of Christ is beautiful. Okay, um, I'm going to start with the scriptures that God first gave me and then finish it with the word. Okay. Thank you. Ephesians 2, 7 through 10. Now God has us where he wants us with all the time in the world and the rest to shower us with grace and knowledge upon us in Christ Jesus. Saving us is all his idea. I can see better without my glasses. And all his work. All we do is trust him enough to let him do it. It's God's gift from the start to the finish. We don't play the major role. If we did, we'd probably go around bragging that we'd done the whole thing. No, we are neither the maker nor the saver of ourselves. God does both the making and the saving. He creates each of us by Christ Jesus to join him in the work that he is doing, the good work he has gotten us ready for to do, work that we had better be doing. And then Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. That's plain enough, isn't it? You're no longer wandering exiles. This kingdom of faith is now your home country. You're no longer strangers or outsiders. You belong here with as much right to the name Christian as anyone. God is building a home. He's using us all. Irrespective of how we got here and what he's building, he used the apostles and the prophets for the foundation. Now he's using you, fitting you in brick by brick, stone by stone, with Christ Jesus as the cornerstone that holds all the parts together. We see it taking shape day after day, a holy temple built by God. All of us built into it, a temple in which God is quite at home. I love that. Let's see. So every day to me is an exciting scavenger hunt with God. I never know what he's going to show me or say. A color by number artwork came to my mind, and I knew he'd lead me to the one that he would deliver his message. God is the master artist, and we are his brushes. Some of us are fine-tipped, rounded, angled, full, small, feathered, or fan-shaped. God holds us, the brushes, in his hands. He has full control over where and how the brushes move. The gifts of the Spirit are the colors. We surrender ourselves to be dipped in the colors and then poured out onto the canvas. And every single brush stroke counts. As more areas are filled in with colors, the picture starts to take shape. Without each of us doing our part, the picture is incomplete. The picture is always designed to reveal God's glory. 
who he is, his character, his love, and his redeeming plan of salvation. All people can participate in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. There are no age limits in the Spirit. And the owl picture is we get wide-eyed when God stirs us with the gifts, and we ask God, who, me? And God says, yes, you, that's who. <laughs> Thank you. I asked her to share that because it just fits so well in what I was wanting to share this morning. Is there's this picture that God's painting, and this little picture that she had, you know, it's, it's sweet the way God spoke to her because, you know, when he speaks to us individually, it's always our language. But, you know, it, it, what she said was that God uses us to begin to paint this painting. And that's way I, the way I saw it was, you know, individually, we're all gifted by God. Some of us have been given different uh, offices in the church, responsibilities and different things. And, you know, but as we come together corporately, God begins to paint a picture using you, me, every one of us, and the picture begins to take shape. And as I've done this church for, as I've led this church for like 17 years, I've seen this picture begin to take shape. And that's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about more. I want to talk about what we, what we as a church are about and, and what makes us different than other churches. You know, what is Moore's purpose? We've talked about our own purposes, but what's this church's purpose in the city? And are you in the right place? And I say this not because I'm trying to cast doubt or cause anybody any uneasiness or anything, but I, I, I want to say this. I was in a church for a long, long time, and one time we came into this crossroads where the word clearly said something and they clearly did something different. And I thought, I felt a little blindsided. In fact, I said those words to Wendy. I said, I feel like I've been blindsided. I believed all my life that we conform to the word and it feels like we're conforming to tradition. And that seemed odd to me. And I thought, I don't want to be blindsided. And I'll just tell you this, that one of my reasons for doing this today and, and doing it on a regular basis, and I haven't done this in a while, is so because I don't want any of you to ever be blindsided. I don't ever want you to wake up in a church one day and go, well, I didn't know that's what they were about. I really want you to know what more is about. And so we're going to do that this morning. Like I say, it's going to be a short message, and that's great. Um, so you have to listen fast. I'm going to talk fast. The, the title of this message is the most boring title I could think of, and it's called More Distinctives. It's like, well, that's pretty boring. Yeah, it is. So I want to start by saying this. Um, preachers used to say these words, and it would really make me uncomfortable because it seemed a little bit prideful. But I think the more that I do this job, the more this needs to be said on a regular basis that, you know, God selected me to, to initiate this work, and he selected me not once but twice. I tried to goof it up one time, and, and he brought me back. And, and I know why, because I wasn't ready. The, the person that started the church wasn't the person that was going to continue the church, so God had to make me ready. So God works through me, and I have a group of elders around me that I am submitted to. Now, people say that sometimes, and they aren't really submitted. They just say that because they want to say, it sounds like you're under accountability. I want to say this. We have a group of men, and we've all known each other so long that I am submitted. There's not a man in that room that can't come to me and say, Daryl, I think this is a little bit weird or off base. Not one. 
And they, and they have great wives, and those wives participate in this too. So we bring in the woman per perspective as well. But I'm just saying that I'm surrounded by a group of men and women that are called elders in this church, and I am submitted to them. And I lead this church under the unction of the Holy Spirit because God selects leaders. He always has. He always will. He didn't, he, didn't, he didn't run by congregation. We're all Americans. We all one person, one vote. We get to choose our representatives. They go to Washington and blah, blah, blah. What all? You know, that, that's a culture we're grown up in. But in church, it operates this way. You know, I was in a congregational church. And the pastor was more of a politician than a leader. He had to be. But in a church like this, you have a leader that's supposedly selected by God. And he is. Because it says in Romans 13 that if he's there, God put him there. And our responsibility is to pray for them. That's true with our president. That's true with anyone that's in leadership. You know, we don't live in a country where if we elect somebody, we don't like them. We just get a coup together and go kill them and put somebody else. We don't do that. We, we, we vote. And then if our person doesn't get in, we are obligated by God as good citizens and Christians to pray for those in authority and not pray that they'll die. But pray that they live and prosper. And pray for their families and protection. And when they go around the world, they represent me. And I will pray for them when they're in another country. I will not look at them with disdain. I will not talk bad about them. Because that's not what God's called me to do. That's not true just in a church. That's true in your family. If you've got a father and a mother, they deserve some honor. Even if they don't do their job very well. God uses leaders. And leaders have to make decisions. And they make decisions based on an unction of God. They'll make it from the conviction of their heart. And that's what I want to establish today. I was selected by God to initiate this work. Now, another thing that kind of frustrates people is I do not pick up causes. Please understand this, that if anything happens in this church, if you hear me preaching anything, it's not because I've taken up somebody's, I've gotten on somebody's bandwagon. I don't pick up causes. That frustrates some people. Some people want me to pick up the cause, you know? Well, we, we're too wishy-washy. we got to tell the people how to vote. you got to get up there and bash Hillary. You know, you got to get up there and bash Trump. you got to get up there and do something. And I'm just like, I don't pick up causes. God didn't call me to preach causes. I don't pick up anybody's cause. If we do anything in this church, it's not based on anyone's cause anywhere. I get that example from Jesus because they tried to bait him into causes all the time and he would never take the bait. I'm not called by God to do that. And I have lots of opinions. I am not wishy-washy. Ask Becky and Lyndall. They know all my opinions, my political views and my views of the world. And, I, and I'm right about all of them. But my job's not to convince you I'm right. So don't let that frustrate you. As we come into this election year, I'm not going to tell you how to vote. And I'm not going to make you feel bad for how you did vote. That may be different than what you're used to, but that, you know that. I will never pick up a cause. <laughs> Lindell, save it. <laughs> Another thing is we're an interdenominational church, not a non-denominational church. You go, well, what does that mean? Well, I'm going to tell you what that means. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Brethren, I speak to you, I want to speak to you like you're spiritual. 
but you're not. You're carnal. And I, and, and I speak to you, and you're like babes in Christ. I feed you with milk, not with solid food, because until now you weren't able to receive it. And even now you're still not able to receive it because you're carnal. Because there's envy inside of you, and there's strife inside your midst. There's divisions in your church. Among you, there's, there, you're carnal. You're behaving like mere men. Paul was saying to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 3 that it, when the church acts like mere men, it looks like every other organization that's out there. People bickering, fighting, pushing for position. Oh, I need the, you know... And, being political and trying to get in charge and, oh, they need to honor me. I mean, it's so full of envy and strife. A church should never be that way unless it's a carnal church. We don't want to be a carnal church. We want to be a spiritual church. And so he says, he goes on and he says, you don't think you're carnal? Well, one says I'm of Paul. Another says I'm of Apollos. Are you not carnal? Who then is Paul? Who is Apollos? They're ministers whom you believed, as the Lord gave each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. He said, so neither he who plants is anything, or he who waters, but it's God who gives the increase. Now he who plants and he who waters are one. One. And each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, and you are God's field. We are God's building. You can see why I wanted Stacy to share her word. This is about God building the church brick by brick. Brick. We're all living stones put in a place like God to build an, a, ta- a temple for God to dwell in. When people come in here, they should be in the midst of God because this is the temple, so to speak, of God. Living stones built one upon another, each doing their part. The stones should not be trying to jockey for position. They should be in their place. They should be operating in love. So what's the difference in interdenominational and non-denominational? Well, a denominational church is one that says, we follow Paul. Another one says, we follow Apollos. We follow this teaching. We follow this truth. We follow this. And so this is our doctrine. This is our creed. They'll even have a book. And you're to read that. And when you agree with the truth, everyone rallies around that person or that truth. And you are a denomination. And then, so everybody got tired of that. And so the denominational churches are diminishing. And what's growing? The non-denominational churches. And it says, we're not any of those things. We're non-denominational. Well, we're not a non-denominational church. Because a non-denominational church throws out all of that other stuff. and, And it begins to build its ministry, its church, around either a purpose or a person. We're not a prayer room, so we're not all gathering to, to meet to pray. We're not, we're not, you know, I'm not Joel Osteen, so we're not going to all gather around because the message is so powerful and his personality has so much persona and charisma. We're not that kind of a church. We're not a non-denominational church that's gathered around truth or personality. What are we? We're an interdenominational church, which means that we embrace both Paul and Apollos. That if you come in as a Baptist or a Catholic or a Church of Christ, we're certainly not going to make you feel bad for that. We will embrace that because there's truth in that. And they do have validity and they do have a place. And so we're not going to try to talk you out of being Catholic. We're not going to try to talk you out of being anything. If you claim Jesus as your Savior, you're our brother and sister in Christ. That's very different. But... You understand why I will never pick up the cause of bashing another 
particular denomination or religion. I will never do that because I don't even think that way. I think they all have valid points. Now, we are a Christian church. We believe Jesus is the one way to heaven. We believe Jesus is the savior of the world. Case closed. But does that mean that I hate Buddhists? No, I don't. Does it mean that I don't believe that they will ever have truth in their heart? No, I believe they do. But I believe Jesus saves them just like he saves me. He saves them with the same blood he saves me. He saves, us, saves the whole world. But my cause is not to go out and, and prove that I'm right and everyone else is wrong. You'll never hear me preach that way. And that frustrates some people. I can be very opinionated. I can be. I can be. I can preach very, very hellfire and damnation. You feel guilty. You wish that, you know, you want to crawl under a rock. I can do that. I've done that. And God's not pleased when I do. What God's pleased is when I include people, when I love people, and make them feel better about themselves instead of worse. You just have to say, what made Jesus attractive to all kinds of people? I mean, all kinds of people. The very religious to the very down and outs, the prostitutes and the Pharisees. He was, he was attractive to all of them. What made him attractive to all kinds of people? His love and his acceptance of all kinds of people. That was the thing that made him attractive. It wasn't his teachings. It was his love and his acceptance. Every time. You see, until Jesus came, religion had been about measuring up. But after Jesus came, it wasn't about measuring up. Why? Because Jesus measured up so we wouldn't have to measure up. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says that Jesus, who had no sin, became sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God. It meant that he took everything on himself so that I don't have to, so that he becomes the measure up and he gives me, if it's like you have to be, let's just say you have to be six foot six to get in heaven. And so we're all trying to, you know, how tall are you? Oh, well, I'm a little closer. You know, I mean, the deal is this, you're six foot six to get to heaven. Well, you, you know, you're trying to do your best. Well, you're never going to grow. I mean, you can try your hardest, but it's just like, I can't do it. I can't be six, six. God says, I'm glad you noticed that. Because Jesus became 6'6", so you wouldn't have to become 6'6". Now, he makes you 6'6", and he's going to take your your 6'0", even. And that means that when you step into glory, you're 6'6", you get to go in. Jesus went to hell for you. His acceptance and love for all because he took it all on himself. I I know, as, as the leader of this church, God wants a church that's attractive to all kinds of people. Now hear me on this. God wants a church, this church, to be attractive to all kinds of people. Now there's lots of kinds of people. We're not just supposed to be attractive to the church people. That that may floor some people, but we're not. We're supposed to be attractive to all kinds of people. Well, how do we do that? The same way Jesus did it. We have to accept all kinds of people and even include them in our fellowship, just like Jesus did. He ate with the sinners. It infuriated the religious people. You know why? He wouldn't eat with them. 
he preferred going to Zacchaeus's or Matthew's house. And it just infuriated him. It still infuriates religious people. It infuriates people whenever, whenever they've been in church for 20 years and they're dry as toast and somebody comes in and gets born again and six weeks later they're leading a Bible study. It infuriates them. But you see, we have to be attractive to all kinds of people. And we have to be welcoming them into our fellowship. Which means it's not just like, well, we love you as long as you're back there. You see, we believe in this church you're saved by grace. And we believe you're not kept in salvation by works. We believe you're saved in grace and that you continue to be saved in grace. You see, this is a huge point. This is a huge, if you want to use the word, distinctive. I'm not going to preach to you. You come to Jesus, get saved. He'll take you just as you are. And then when you get here, you better do this, do this, do this, or Jesus is going to turn his back on you. I will never preach that because I don't believe that. I believe the same grace that saves you on day one is the same grace that saves you on day 156, the same grace that saves you when you're 50 years old. The truth is, when he saved you day one, he knew what every year of your life was like, and he said, I commit to you. See, when Jesus stands at the altar, you know how those married couples, they say, for better and for worse. And you're standing there as a preacher going, I wonder if they really mean that. Because there's some, probably some worse coming. You know, I know that when Wendy and I got married, she didn't know what she was getting into. She really didn't. But she's been faithful to that. I mean, she has stayed with me through thick and thin. Thank God for her. But the deal is, I, I say when you stand there, but when God stands at the altar and he says, I want you to be my bride, he knows everything you'll do and he still wants to marry you. Anyway. Moving right along. There's a sign out front. Says more. Come as you are, not as you should be. That, that's a phase two sign. As we've evolved over the years, it used to say passionately pursuing Jesus. We used to be such a church that was a lot more about prayer and a lot more about learning to worship and learning the heart of God and, and just soaking in his midst. We used to, one year, 2005, we prayed 255 days. I mean, that's not to trumpet our horn. It's just where the season we were in. And, and I felt as the leader of this church that we needed to learn to pray. My house should be called a house of prayer for all the nations. And we did pray for all the nations. And I love that. But we're not going backwards. We're not becoming a house of prayer. We're called to do something very unique. We're called to be a light on a hill that calls people to come as they are, not as they should be. Now let me tell you what the sign doesn't say. Come as you are, and I'll be disappointed if you don't change into what I think you should be. That's not what the sign says. Come as you are, and I'll be very disappointed in you if in a few weeks you don't change into what I think you should be. Why, why do we do that to people? That's real attractive. I tell you, you know why Jesus was attractive? Because he didn't do that. And we shouldn't either. And I won't ever do that. Some of you have stepped into horrible sin, and I'll defend you. Because I know your heart. 
The people that want to pile on you and exclude you and, and punish you and, 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 and kill you are never going to get me to agree with them. Now, there's two sides to that. When it's somebody else, you can get offended that I say that. When it's you, you feel comforted that I said that. Well, it just depends on what season you're in. Whichever one you're in, just wait. You'll need this one. Just like you'll be like this one. Come as you are, not as you should be. Another church in town, I guess they'd seen her sign. Maybe they didn't. I don't know. But they said, come as you are, but don't stay that way. I'm like, okay, whatever. We're just not that way. That's not us. You see, we're distinctive. If that makes you, if that makes you uncomfortable, I'm just telling you that this is the heart of this body. And I want you to understand that. This is another one. Change is not a requirement. Change is a result. This is a distinctive. Because you'll go a lot of places and they'll tell you, if you don't change, God can't accept you. And I'm saying, you can't change. That's why Jesus died for you. When Jesus, Jesus comes into you, then it's up to him to do whatever he wants to do with you. I know with me that I'm 60-something, 61-something. Yeah, 61. I just said 61 because I'm the low end of 60s. Um, but when I was saved at 21, 40 years ago, I was, I was a mess. And I continue to be a mess. There was a lot of things I immediately changed. I wanted changed. God, come save me. And he did. And he saved me. And so many things changed in my life. But, you know, the man that I was at 40 is not the man that I am at 60. And I can tell you this. I like the guy at 60 better than I did the guy at 40. And I like the guy at 40 better than I did the guy at 20. But I'm, I'm progressing. It's glory to glory. I'm being transported to the image of Christ. He is making me into a better me. But if he had stood over here at 21 and said, change into that guy, or I will not accept you, I would have said, God, I can't. I can't be six foot six. So change is not a requirement at more. Change is a result. When you are impacted by the living God, you will change. Even if your heart just gets more full of love, something's going to happen. But don't get frustrated at me because I don't beat people up to change before they come to God. You know why I don't? It's because I don't want to fall into the hands of the money changers. It's the only people Jesus whipped. They were telling them, you have to change what you have into what we think you need to have before you can go in. I will never, ever do that. So if you want to set up a money changing table, it probably won't happen here. That's not a ministry of this church. You, you need to hear that. There was something, there was some interpretation needed on that. If your ministry is to set up a money changing table, it probably won't happen here. Now, what I'm about to say is kind of out there. But I want you to not be taken back. Jesus never required one person to change before he forgave them. 
Find me one. There's not one. Jesus never required one person to change before he chose them. Not one. Jesus never required one person to change before he used them. Distinctives. The word is the authority that guides my theology. And Jesus is the theology of the word. Jesus said, if you search scripture and you don't find me, you've missed it. He and his words and example are all we have to know the interpretation of the Bible. I hope you heard me on that. Jesus never required a person to change before he forgave, chose, or used any of them. So, why would we require something Jesus didn't require? Because we want to control. And the only two spirits he said to beware of were the two spirits of control of religion and politics. God is God. Jesus is our Lord and Savior. He saves us, and then he's Lord, and he leads us. And we follow him in his example and in his way. Jesus never, ever, ever said, change, and I will accept you. Because it's God's kindness that leads to repentance. And that doesn't happen in a vacuum. It happens in us. If our kindness is not leading the way, we will not see true repentance from anyone in the world. There's been several key phrases it more from the very beginning. And you've heard many of them. There was a time that God told me, not with these, but with these. And it was startling to me because we had just begun the church. And what he was saying is the church is going to turn over. And it, it grieved my heart because I loved all those people. And it has continued to grieve my heart because God has, has, has refined and refined and defined and refined. And he's still refining because in John 14, in John 15, he says that we're a vine, and when we're fruitful, he prunes us so we can be more fruitful. And we have continually been pruned, and we've seen ourselves be more fruitful and more fruitful and more fruitful. There was a time that I saw a vision of angels telling, the, that God was telling some angels to, to get us more room. We need more room. I saw that in our old building that held about um, maybe 200 people on a good day, and we weren't filling it up then. In fact, the first service we had in this church when God miraculously provided us this building um, almost 13 years ago, our first service, we had 88 people in this service on the first service. 
We're about to go to two services because on most Sundays, people can't find. We had two couples come in two weeks ago, and they walked around for a long time before someone in our congregation got up and gave them their seat. I'm saying that God has said we need more room. I didn't believe it when he said it. I I actually said to him, what are we going to do, play soccer in there? I didn't know. It, it, you know, it confused me. And when we bought this building, I was trying to figure out a way we could build a wall right across the center of it so it wouldn't look so ridiculous when we had meetings. But God knew and God did it. And he said, not with these, but with these, because God knew there was a particular group of people that were going to come and paint a particular kind of church, a particular kind of picture, because we have a particular call. It's not everyone's call. It's not that we're so special and everybody else is wrong. I I can't stand that kind of pride. The truth is we are called to a very specific task, and that specific task is not for everyone. So it's a church for everyone else. This, this offends so many people. People go, I'm not an everyone else. Well, I am. <laughs> you know, I couldn't be a preacher in most churches. Because I don't have the pedigree or the degree or the history or any of those E's. I don't have any of that stuff. In fact, you know, it would be like skull and crossbones if I turned in a resume to some other church. The deal is I've been put here to be the father of this house because God says there's a unique work that needs to be done. And it's like what J.R. said, my failures have become my victories and my victories are supposed to be other people's victories. And so it's difficult for me to lead an ordinary church because I hadn't had an ordinary life. And I just say to you, we have a specific call. You see, there was, there was two kinds of people. When the woman was caught in adultery, there was a lady laying on the ground and everybody was going to throw stones. And Jesus came in and, and, and said, if you don't have sin, cast the first stone. You see, there's two people in that story besides Jesus. There's a lady that clearly was wrong. She had sinned. The, the law said she should die. And the law did not say the stoners have to be without sin. The law said, if she's caught in the act of adultery, stone her. It didn't say, if you're perfect. But Jesus came in and superseded the law. You need to hear this. He superseded the law. He said, the law is true, but this is greater truth. And so he superseded. There's two kinds of people, those that throw rocks And those that deserve rocks. You guessed it. We're the church for all the ones that deserve the rocks. Okay? We're a church for everybody else. That's just the truth. We're a church for the people like the woman at the well. Who had five husbands and was living with some guy. But she got so excited about Jesus, she just forgot all that. You see, no one wanted to be around her. That's why she came at noon by herself to the well. No one wanted to be around her because she was, had a bad reputation. She'd been married so many times and she's living with some guy. She had a terrible reputation. No woman, no self-respecting church person would want to be around her because they just didn't. It was, she was a sinner. You guessed it. We're the church for those people. See, everyone else's. They, they don't feel like they can fit anywhere else because nobody really wants to be around them. 
We're, we're a church for the, the woman that was at the, the prostitute that came into Simon the Pharisee's house and washed Jesus' feet with her hair and her tears. We're a, we're a church for that. We're a church for the prodigal sons and not the older brothers. But I can tell you this right now, that every preacher that has half a brain wants a church of older brothers. Why? Because they work so hard and they keep their mouths shut and they serve and they give and they do what they're told. Nobody wants to build a church on prodigals because they're unpredictable and they squander money and they do stupid things. And, the, and guess what? We're called to be a church for everyone else. And that's the truth. I don't want you to be older brothers. I want you to be who you are. Because it's so important. It's so important that you are who God created you to be. I can't stress this enough. The one thing Jesus says, and he says it over and over, and you never hear it preached, is when he returned, he said, depart from me because I didn't know you. And you want to say, Jesus, didn't you create me? He said, but I didn't create you to be that. It is so important that you don't try to live someone else's life for them. You have been created by God to be you. And the reason we want to get in everybody else's business is because we're not comfortable with our own skin. We should just become who we are in Christ. And be full of love for everyone. I loved that song. If it comes down to us and them, it's us for them. That is the truth of, upon truth. These are more distinctives. So don't spend your life trying to be something you're not. You can't make yourself more acceptable to God. You can't. No matter how hard you try. We're all sinners. We all have black hearts. It doesn't matter how it got black. It's just a black heart. And Jesus wants to come into each and every one of us and take that heart out and give us a heart of flesh, a heart of a red heart beats with blood, the blood of Jesus. He's not waiting for you to get it together. He's just waiting for you to say yes, and I want you in my heart. That's all he's saying. Some of you have made this so hard because the church has made it so hard. I just want to say to you right now today, you can, you can, you can do this exchange Right now, right where you sit. You don't have to say a certain prayer. You don't have to do any incantation. You don't have to do anything. You just have to say, Jesus, I know you died for my sins. I want you in my life. I want you in me. I want you in me. I know that I fail. I know that I fail. And I may fail tomorrow, Jesus, but I want you with me when I do. I want you with me the rest of my days. And Jesus will come into your heart right now. Right now. And he'll begin to be your friend. That's right. Not a taskmaster, a friend. I'm going to end with this. So many people don't know where they fit. I hear it all the time. I don't know where I fit. Well, where you fit depends on where you've been. Where you fit depends on where you've been. Your story is important. Super important. 
And in the fall of this year, we've learned about miracles and angels and, and the Holy Spirit and gifts of the Spirit. We've learned about how God intersects our life over and over again, all through our life, and how it's just been miraculous thing after miraculous thing, how he's rescued us for a reason, all these things that we've talked about this year. And that we're going to end this year talking about how Jesus has made a difference in each one of our lives. Every one of us has had a story. And the, the big, big question is, what difference does Jesus make in your life? What difference does Jesus make in your life? If Jesus was to suddenly be gone, what difference would there be in your life? I mean, I hope you'd say something, you know, you have a story, you have a story about how Jesus has made a huge difference in your life. It may not be a perfect story and it probably isn't if you're honest, but the truth is he's in our lives and he stays in our life and he never leaves us or forsakes us and he stays there and he makes a giant difference. And over the course of this fall, I, I want to hear your stories. I want you to send them to me. I want to know how Jesus has made a difference in your life. Because I want several of you to get up here and share how Jesus has made a difference in your life. The testimony is one of the most powerful things in the church. Why are we doing this? So we can get fuzzies and say, oh, that's cool. That's a cool. No, here's the reason. Because 2017 is a year of harvest. And this church has been positioned to reach the everybody else's in our city. To go out into the highways and byways and bring every person into Christ. We're not responsible to clean them up or put them in the right clothes. We're just responsible to put them in a seat at the table of God. That's what we're called to do because God loves so many people and we need to stop putting qualifiers on people. We need to open our arms wide. So we're learning to tell our story. Your story is the most powerful thing you have. And you've got to learn to tell it. And that's what we're going to do. And hopefully someone else's story is your story and you can begin to put together your story. So when you are encountering people in the world... You can say, well, I don't know about all that church stuff, but let me just tell you what Jesus has done for me. He's really made a big difference in my life, and I'm changed because of him. And I love him so much. So, it's after 12. I just, ministry team, if you'll come up. I, I just, I don't want to make a big production here. I just, I'm just going to say we're here to pray with you. Um, I... A sermon like this is not, it's difficult to have personal application to. Maybe the Holy Spirit's made a personal application in your heart. That's fine. I'll say to you that this sermon says one thing to me. That is, I want you to be who you are. And, I, and, and, and you're fine. You're fine. I mean, you just be who you are. You're fine. I love you. You know, it, God, God is in the business of, of, of refining us and making us like he wants us to be. But I'll just say this, that there's a place for you and we want you to find your place and we want you to minister to God and for God and we want you to have an impact in the world. And we're going to do everything in our power to equip you to do the work of your ministry that God's put in your heart.